Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, I'm excited to welcome CEO of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence to the podcast, Sarah Litvak, and welcome back her colleague and VP of Government Relations, Anna Bullard. Sarah Litvak is a behavior analyst based out of Southern California. She, along with her team, created measurement tools and provide metric to assess ABA provider quality. Sarah assists ABA providers in optimizing their services and equally importantly, helps families identify quality ABA providers across the United States. Anna Bullard joined us all the way back on podcast number 18, where she talked to us about the importance of being a parent advocate and the incredible impact you can have if you speak up and use your voice. Anna has over a decade of experience in developing policy and advocating at the state and federal level. Additionally, she has developed payer relations to increase access to quality care while developing capacity for growth. Her knowledge as a parent who has experienced the struggles of getting services her child needed has allowed her to develop a streamlined approach for families to access care in a timely manner. We're excited to hear about the incredible ways the BHCOE is advancing the field of ABA from both the parent and the provider perspective. Let's dive into it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Our pleasure. Um, I'm going to, I'd love to hear the backstory here, Sarah, is that, I mean, everybody gets into the field of autism for a reason, but getting into the field of ensuring quality care of autism isn't something that uh, a lot of people have jumped in with two feet right off the bat. So how did this start? How did you get started with the BHCOE? Yeah, uh, happy to share. And thanks again for having us. It's always fun chatting with you. Um, I'll start by just saying that I um, always loved children. I knew that I wanted to work with children from a young age and wanted to go be a pediatrician. So I was kind of, you know, going down the medical route. And in college, I ended up working at an autism center that was one of the nation's kind of top autism centers. Um, you know, very long wait list, really hard to get in. And it was a research institution where you would just see kids come in. And, you know, I remember the first patient I ever worked with, um, was seven years old, really self-injurious, banging his head against the wall. I mean, just really, really aggressive um, and injuring himself. And, um, you know, within two months at the clinic was a completely different kid, right? Like, you know, would walk in, was pleasant, was smiling, was happy, wasn't injuring himself, wasn't injuring others. And at that moment, I knew I fell in love with applied behavior analysis and I knew that it could make a huge impact Um for families all over. So I worked there for four years. I stayed on through my graduate school and I, you know, ended up becoming associate clinical director of the, the clinic there. And then, you know, fast forward, I get my first job as a board certified behavior analyst. And I realized that this incredible quality of care that's being provided in a research institution just looks very different than what's happening in kind of the practical world. And it was really disheartening because what you realized is depending on whether as a parent, if you have one BCBA working for you, that's fantastic. You're going to have a great experience. But if you have a BCBA working for you that you don't quite mesh with, you're not going to have a great experience. And so I just saw the variability that parents were having when they were, you know, choosing services. 
Um, and I ended up becoming a clinical director of a large agency, the agency, and I saw that very carefully within the organization. You know, you're just having widely different experiences, even within the same organization. And it made me realize that quality isn't about the individual. It's really about the system in which they're working under. So the organization they work for can help really put together systems that allow them to succeed, whether it's training and support and kind of having the way they do things that really improve the care that that's getting provided. So I worked in an organization, I tried to put a lot of systems in place and really create uniformity within the organization. And then, um, you know, this is back, back in 2009, when there weren't a lot of ABA providers, there was kind of one large ABA provider where I lived that had a couple hundred patients under their care. And um, the employee showed up to work and there was a sign on the door that said, we're out of business, you know, basically come back, you know, go figure it out on your own. And I remember thinking how crushing that must have been for families who really depend on these people to receive care. You know, especially I think about the child I worked with who was seven at the autism center there. You know, imagine if that person just that that child just couldn't get services. Right. And they're dealing with these really, really challenging behaviors. And the family is, too. Um, and so I just thought, gosh, I mean, this is a huge responsibility when an organization decides to provide ADA. Um, and oftentimes it falls on the clinician to make sure that they're providing quality care, but it really should fall on the organization that employs these clinicians. Um, so the state put together a transparency committee to try and figure out why did this happen? How can we make sure that providers are providing quality care? And I got pulled into that. I was really lucky. One of my mentors um, had started the project and then asked me to join and then he quickly got another role elsewhere. And so I was kind of left to oversee the project for, it was a five-year project I oversaw it for four years. Um, and we, at that time, evaluated organizations across the entire state um, and just noticed the huge disparity in quality. Um, and it was it was really shocking to me that there can be organizations providing care that really largely don't have qualified staff, don't have qualified, you know, appropriate training, you know, aren't measuring patient satisfaction or outcome, aren't measuring whether their employees are happy. And, you know, there's so many things that go into it. So um, when the state uh, decided that they no longer needed the project because they weren't funding ABA anymore, the autism mandate hit. If you're new to legislation, you know, the autism mandate basically required that insurance covers ABA instead of state, federal, state or federal programs. So essentially the kind of the state said, we don't need to fund this quality assurance project anymore. Um, so I ended up going to them and said, hey, this is important. I think it needs to happen nationally. And, you know, Next thing I knew, we were starting an organization that was doing this on a broader level and come to find out we're now, you know, the only accrediting body specific to ABA and have evaluated 600 organizations across the U.S. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. I would say it's definitely a little bit of luck, a little bit of fate that I came down the path and was able to to go go create something that's impacted so many families. Yeah, I mean, you say a little bit of luck, a little bit of fate, but it all started probably with a lot of heart. I mean, you recognize that, you know, there's a need out there. You have a lot of vulnerable people that are putting their faith in a system that maybe didn't have oversight at the time. And filling that gap becomes extremely important. And I, I guess this kind of segues straight to you, Anna, is that you were out there advocating. And I would imagine is that you're advocating for a science almost back at the time where you started your advocacy is that you didn't have the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence behind you to be able to put a stamp of quality on things. So from a parent perspective, when you were out there talking about ABA services and talking about the value of ABA services, how did the individual stories of parents, how did that 
how did that take off? Because everybody's experience was so different. And I would imagine there were parts of, of Georgia where uh, when you were working on Ava's Law, where ABA did not look like what you would imagine ABA should look like. Was that frustrating at all? Yeah, it, it's so interesting to think about timelines, right? Because as Sarah mentions in, in 2009, as she's really kicking that off, in 2009 was the first year that I started working at the Georgia State Capitol to get autism legislation passed. Um, and it, it was actually very challenging because there wasn't um, any type of accreditation body. It wasn't recognized as a healthcare benefit, right? And so there was nothing to lean on. Um, as especially as a parent, but even even when we would bring in professionals and and you know physicians, it still was something that was easy to say. Is this healthcare? Should healthcare really cover this? Looking back, how impactful it would have been, you know. But at the same time, um, I I think that's why it's so critical uh, where we are today and really why I joined BHCOE uh, is to ensure that what we all fought so hard for and took years to get um, to the place for it to be recognized as a healthcare benefit, we have to have accreditation. Um, we have to have quality metrics in order to maintain the efficacy of the benefit. Um, so so it's, it's, it's really everything is coming together to me at an important time in, in you know, the history of ABA. Yeah, and I look at what you're describing from a provider standpoint. I look at the value of an organization that is, is really digging deep into the accrediting standards that is going out and auditing these organizations. And I look at it as a way for growth within the field. It's a way to be able to understand any deficits and to start corrective actions, make things stronger as time goes on. And ideally those benchmarks keep moving up and up and we challenge ourselves as a field. But uh, and I guess I'll ask Sarah this question, but when you're explaining this to a family, I, I, can, I can look at it from a provider's perspective, but I'm not a parent with a child with autism. So looking at it from that perspective, how do you explain your mission to them so that they feel a part of that process? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think when I take a step back and think about ultimately what we're trying to achieve here and kind of our vision is really to ensure and encourage what we consider to be safe, effective, equitable, patient-centered healthcare, right? And so whether that's, um, you know, at the patient level where you're kind of experiencing it day to day, or whether it's what's happening within the organization, I think every parent should just be aware that the same way you choose your general practitioner, your dentist, or your, you know, anyone else you're working with, I mean, there's goodness of fit that exists. And I think that what I would just let parents know is you're in this really sticky situation where there's almost not enough providers to, to, to provide services to the, to the to individuals with autism because of the strong demand, right? That number is increasing. And so unfortunately, you know, you're in an uphill battle where providers don't, you know, there's a wait list, right? So it may feel like you don't have as much choice as you would want. And so I think what I'm trying to really do is educate parents that even though there's that demand that, that's happening where there's a wait list almost everywhere, you should still fight for quality, right? And sometimes the quality conversation takes a back seat 
because it's like, I just need therapy. I don't care who I'm getting it from. I don't care when it's happening or who it's happening by, but you know, I strongly believe that poor therapy can do just as much damage as no therapy, right? Um, and you want to make sure that you're seeing progress and that you're getting that communicated to you and that you really are seeing the impact of therapy because therapy in itself isn't going to make changes. It's the impact of quality therapy, right? Um, so you want to make sure that you feel like your child's making progress, whether they are or aren't. You want to have a positive relationship with the provider you're working with. So I think I see a lot of parents who just walk away from ABA therapy because it was a bad fit. And I think to me, that's really you know concerning because there's certainly a difference between quality and poor quality therapy. And if you're walking away because it's not working, my, my thought would be that you haven't had good ABA, right? And I think that's what we need to be aware of at the parent level is that there's such a difference. And if you are feeling like you're not seeing impact or if you're not seeing like you're not getting the change that you want, I would encourage you to look for a provider that's accredited that maybe has some oversight systems in place that are really upping the bar. So Anna, from that parent perspective, how are parents, what are the quality indicators? What are these larger buckets that they could be looking at to know that they're in good hands with their service provider? Yeah, Jeff, that's so important because I hear from so many families really on a weekly basis who are struggling to uh, communicate with their provider when they are having issues or when they're when there are concerns about the, the progress or lack of progress their child is making. And, you know, I think that BHCOE has really created what I feel like is a way for parents to be able to clearly see what they should be looking for in a real quality provider. We have 11 I call them indicators just for families to be able to understand, but you know, 11 indicators that we're evaluating a provider on. But for a family, what I really focus on are things like the intake process. You know, are they able to get you into services in a timely manner? Are they able to actually staff your child's um, therapy hours with what they said was medically necessary. Those types of things are so critical to a child's progress. If, if you say a child needs 30 hours, but you can only deliver 10 of those, that child is not going to make the progress that they really have the potential to make. Um, and then, of course, I, I always tell parents, talk to your BCBA. Number one, how, how much how will how willing is that BCBA to to communicate with you and to interact with you um, and to be a support not just to your child but to the family as a whole? So that that family support piece, I like to call it family support, even though it's family training in the provider world. But um, really, how much is is that BCBA going to provide that support to generalize skills into your family and into the home or the community? or the center or wherever it might be. Um, those are just things that I think families are, you know, they're looking at, when I started ABA, I'd never even heard of a BCBA. So knowing that a BCBA should supervise your child's program and that they really should be seeing your child weekly, that's something a parent doesn't even know. It, it, that, that piece is really taken for granted sometimes on the provider side, that a family just knows that, they don't. They don't even know what all these acronyms mean. They just want their child to, to be happy, to be able to eat food and 
play with other kids. And of course they want the other, you know, long-term goals, but in the moment, you know, they don't know all these, you know, intricate healthcare things that the provider just really is, is just living in that world. So I, I, I think those are important things to families. And then, you know, I also think really a huge piece of that is you, you yourself should be involved in the treatment program. The parent should be involved. And if that provider doesn't appreciate that, value that, and include the family or caregiver in the treatment program, then that's a red flag for me. And I, all of the all of that advice, I think, is crucial for a family to look at. And I mean, I wouldn't know where to start if I wasn't in the field. I would not know what questions to ask. And I think that these are all things that we should be as providers and not just uh, as an organization like the BHCOE, but we should be echoing for you. We should be letting them know, ask these questions. If we don't have answers, that's a problem within our system. Um, so when a group does get all this together, when a family does get this whole package, there's got to be some wow stories out there. There's got to be some of those stories where the family's like, aha, we finally got what we needed. This is what it should look like. And this is what happened. Um, I, and I guess I'll ask you, Anna, is have, have the families come back and told you, you know what? We, we reached out. We got a BHCOE accredited organization. They're doing what you told me they would do. And this is what I'm seeing. Can you tell me one of these stories? Yeah, absolutely. It it actually is so exciting because I got to participate in um, uh, an event that happened in Georgia. It's just an autism conference that they do in Atlanta. And I got to be on a panel with a parent who uh, was um, recently, her child actually um, was able to try trade out of service, which was pretty phenomenal. But she had found an accredited provider and the story was very um, so encouraging because she actually had gone through a few different other providers and just trying to find the right fit. Um, and she approached this provider. And really the, the important thing that I took away was she said from the moment that she called the provider who was accredited and started the process, it was totally different. That's what she said. I mean, she said, I had no idea what I should have been getting because I had not. But she said literally from the day I called and spoke to the provider, it was totally different. And one of the things that really stood out to her was the interaction with her BCBA. That was like she said a huge missing piece. And, and I can speak to that myself from, you know, went back in 2007 when I was trying to find Ava a provider and, and there was no BHCOE to lean on and to look to for resources. Um, I went to a provider and realized after three months of my child's life being given that they didn't even have a BCBA on staff. They had someone who had a behavioral health degree or a degree in something and they were doing, you know, ABLE's assessments and things, but there was no BCBA um, on staff. and. And and I didn't even know to to ask for that. So, you know, that that really stood out when this mom said that when she said it was different from day one and my BCBA reached out to me personally and was able to talk through what are the important things that were important to me and my child and and her child made 
incredible progress. I think that's the other obvious standout thing. She talked about how her child went from basically being nonverbal and non-social to being completely integrated into a classroom. And she's she's really doing incredible, um, similar to Ava's story. So very exciting to hear that from that mom. And it's no surprise to me. I mean, you take a parent, you give them a a voice right from the beginning. You show that you're listening, incorporating it into treatment. You empower them through the process to feel like they can ask and that there's transparency to what what's going on. Of course, you're going to end up with these better outcomes. You're going to end up with a happier family and a more committed family to being able to follow through on the treatment, which I think are all crucial pieces. Um, Sarah, I have a question for you. Just because you both, um, both you and Anna, had had brought up the concern or, or the component of care, which is access to treatment. We are in probably the funkiest of times right now, um, yeah. where access to care, I would imagine, is the hardest thing in the world yeah. to be able to fulfill. Um, coming out of COVID, uh, you're you're running into challenges. Uh, the employment um, of that direct the crucial position of the direct care staff, which is what makes this tick. You have a behavior analyst that's going to guide the program, but you need wonderful behavior technicians is a tough job and you're not finding as many people out in the field right now in that position. How is that affecting patient care? How's that affecting families and how's that affecting accreditation? Yeah, I I mean, it's a great question because ultimately I think we go back to this idea that we want patients to access care, right? And so, you know, I think there's two factors that should be considered. The first one is, you know, not if you're not accredited, it doesn't mean that you're not providing, it doesn't, if the organization you're working with isn't accredited, it doesn't mean they're not providing quality care, right? I want to be very clear about that. You could be working, your family could be working with an accredited provider that, or a non-accredited provider who's doing a great job, right? Um, So I just want to be clear on that is that, accreditation is a way to really demonstrate that you're doing those things, right? It doesn't it doesn't mean that if you're not accredited, you're not doing quality work. So I think that's the first thing is there's many organ many patients getting care from non-accredited organizations who are doing fine. Um, I think what we're trying to avoid is the ones who don't have that experience. And I think accreditation can help. Um, I also think that, you know, if you're familiar with the way that RBTs work or technicians work, um, it's a tough job. I mean, I was a technician at one point and, you know, you're really dealing with challenging behaviors. You know, you're you're getting spit on and kicked and, you know, you're dealing with a lot of really challenging behavior. So um, I think those technicians have a really tough time staying in that role because of how challenging it is. And so ultimately we found that turnover so that the people leading the organization is lower for organizations that are accredited versus not. So the industry turnover is around 60 to 80 percent. We find organizations who are accredited tend to be around 30 to 40 percent. So from a parent perspective, it's more so that, you know, that that organization will likely have more continuity of care. So you won't have a different technician in your home every month, right, which is what you want. You, You want the same technician that you're working with for the next six months to a year, if anything, Um, And so I think that's really important is, you know, making sure that you're integrated in this system that doesn't have that high turnover. So there's factors like that. I also think technicians are looking for what we're calling like a lifestyle organization to work with. You don't want an organization where you're having to bill 50 hours a week and you're running from case to case and you're overworked and overtired and accreditation really manages caseloads and supervision and oversight. 
So the idea is that you have happier staff, right? So and if you if you have happier staff working for you as a parent, you're going to be happier because that's going to seep into it. So I think those are all the factors that are taken into account. But ultimately, access is a big issue, both on the, you know, how you're hiring staff and how you're finding, you know, how patients are finding providers. And so it, there, there's a lot of moving parts there. But I'd argue that, you know, staff who are caring about having a home, growing within an organization, um, making sure that there's, you know, there's a place that they can call home that they're not going to just leave in six months because the situation is so challenging. They're working for accredited providers where they look at that badge and they see that's a place where I know that they have these parameters in place. Yeah, uh, and I, I think one of the things, and I'd love to hear how the BHCOE is doing this, but um, one of the things that I think really shows the investment in the staff is the continued education or helping them to continue on their degree path um, and become uh, clinicians over time. But I, I know that the BHCOE offers ongoing education. They do it organizationally, but I think that they also do it for, for professional development. So maybe, Sarah, you can give us a little bit of insight on how those programs are run, how they help to support the patient care, the overall quality, and ultimately the families that they're serving. Yeah, so um, we certainly have, um, aside from accreditation, we have things like a virtual academy. So the providers who are working with us, their team gets access to free continuing education units. They get educated monthly about things like, um, you know, how to deal with with parent training. They get, you know, expert people who are really coming in and kind of giving them that education. And I think that's a really big part of it, too, is that they're kind of learning not just they get the badge, but there's continuous learning opportunities. Um, I'll give you an example. During COVID, largely when COVID hit, a lot of providers really didn't know who to turn to, what to do, how to make sure their patients are safe, how to make sure their staff are safe. And so, you know, we have a team of experts who are really behind the scenes. You know, we had legal experts coming in, making sure that everyone is adhering to appropriate safety precautions. Um, We had healthcare regulatory attorneys. So we're really, you know, those organizations have a network behind them that are supporting them to do the right thing every day. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that promoting that quality, understanding the process is is really important. Oftentimes you'll have organizations that are daunted by the idea of opening everything up, being transparent. which, which is, and it's also time consuming at times, at, at least in the mind of the organization, they don't know what they're walking into. Um, it sounds like this is an important step for parents because parents are gonna have to have the trust that somebody is doing some of the legwork that they don't have the ability to do themselves, the knowledge set necessarily to audit an organization's clinical quality. But what does that process look like? Maybe Anna, you can give me a little bit of an understanding for other organizations that are looking to provide that quality patient care and help support the families. What does their accreditation process look like? Is it is it cumbersome? Is it time consuming? Is it arduous? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think anytime you're 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 having to really uh, provide information that is going to truly show the quality of service and quality of care, that is going to be uh, be something that takes time. Um, you know, and, and I think if it didn't take time, I, I think it, it we could say we, we couldn't say that it was as meaningful as it is. Right. Because these providers are really um, they're really having to show, not just say, but show and, and then not just show through documentation, but but also through, um, you know, real life clinical work. 
um, that what they're doing is is what they say that they do. And I think that piece is so valuable. I know to me as a parent, that extra layer of knowing that someone has truly reviewed that in a way that is, um, you know, not just on a piece of paper um, is extremely meaningful. I think providers, though, find safety in that find safety in knowing that, you know, someone has really vetted all the processes and procedures that are happening. Um, and so I, I'm super proud of that for, for us as an organization, because, you know, there are many different types of accreditations out there. I've worked in the education system some, and I think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, we, we really do um, feel like it is it, it is really a level of quality that we are showing because of that extra layer of um, of of really a lens into that that organization. Yeah, and I think that lens is what allows people to start making informed choices. Which with healthcare is that you want everything that you're doing to be an informed choice. Um, so it, we've talked a lot about the systems, the administration, the having the safeguards in place. I'd be curious, is is the BHCOE doing anything to look at uh, potential outcomes, which in our field probably is the hardest thing to be able to evaluate because every child's outcome and prognosis is so different. But is there yeah. are there things that we're looking at in that realm that are going to help to guide parents or is that just too hard to get to right now? Oh, no, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's easy, but I think it's definitely, um, it's, it's definitely within our reach. And actually, you know, Jeff, you, you all have been through the process. So, you know, we do collect outcome data from the organizations um, to look at progress. Um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of really exciting work around that right now, because, you know, we do have a lot of data that we've collected over the years where we can really start piecing apart you know, what works, what doesn't work, what are average improvement areas you want to see. And so there's certainly a lot of that. <laughs> but I think when we think about outcome, I think it's important to understand that um, outcome isn't just an improvement on uh, an assessment. I think that the field is largely moving to what we're calling patient reported outcomes. So that's kind of your, you know, patient perspective on whether the child or patient is improving, parent, parent perspective on that. Um, and then also things like quality of life. So like is parent stress reducing? Um, our parents feeling like their life is getting easier as their quality of life improving. So I think those are also things that are important components that we're measuring and that become a really big piece of the larger overall treatment package that you're getting is making sure that you're not just feeling like you're making improvement, but also that the provider can show you that your child actually is. Yeah, and for parents and providers alike, having the ability to analyze some of that information and not just to, to evaluate where you stand in the field, but to understand what areas to be able to put more effort into for your organization, because every place is going to have areas that they're going to excel and areas that they need to continue to strengthen, kind of like any individual. <laughs> it's uh, it's nice to have that data start to come out. I'm, I'm sure that that's going to really um, enhance the service delivery as time comes. Um, well, I, I'd love to just uh, hear from you all any sort of I don't know, advice, any sort of um, guidance that you might have for families. I'll, I'll start with Anna, because I think both of you all might have very different perspectives on this question. But what would you tell a family if they were just first reaching out to you? And where would you guide them to go? 
Well, that happens all the time <laughs> to me. Um, and and it's interesting because no matter how far we've come um, in the resources and increasing providers, the roadmap when your child is diagnosed with autism is still very challenging. And it's really, um, it's to me, it really is crazy that 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 piece hasn't improved that much. And and Sarah and I talk about that a lot. And I know BHCOE is going to um, play a role in impacting that because my child gets diagnosed, and then try you're you're trying to find what your diagnostician told you to go get ABA, and you're like, what is that? Also, all these other things are coming at you, and if your child is school aged. There's so much, um, but you know, for me, I always tell a parent, we we know that ABA can improve the life of your child. We know that um, that is the science, and that is what is medically prescribed. And so, I usually will start with where a parent lives, and then looking at our directory to say, here's some accredited providers that you can reach out to. So, I think the the important piece is helping a family get into treatment with a quality provider as soon as possible. I mean, that that is at the core of what we have to do. Everything else we can work out along the way. Uh, we can figure school out or other types of things, but starting ABA is going to impact the entire family's life mm -hmm. and, and alleviate a lot of the stress that's going on. And so that's really what I try to do first and foremost, um, you know, is, is helping them. And our accredited providers are so fantastic about that. Yeah, that message is really loud and clear. And I think that you mentioned it about when back in 2007, you were looking for services and finding that that provider. But now it sounds like there's resources and having a resource as a family versus trying to vet it yourself seems very important. Um, and maybe, Sarah, you can answer that same question. Like, wh where's your advice? But I'd also like to know is where do you think things are going? I mean, where's the next step? What what might be on the horizon? Well, you know, I'll, I'll say that I don't think I could have said it better than Anna on the advice piece, and nor would I try and give better advice than that, because I think coming directly from a parent of a child with autism, I think, is, you know, the best way to hear that information. Um, so I'm happy to answer the moving forward question, which is, I think we're in this really interesting crossroads where, you know, one in 54 children have autism. Um, it's not a small number. Um, and so, you know, almost everyone knows someone who has a child with autism. You know, those of you listening, you, you might have a child with autism. And I think what that looked like 10 or 20 years ago looks very different than what that looks like today, um, where there are more resources, there are more opportunities. And I think, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you kind of just took what you what you got, right? Like there were such limited resources. And I think I would just empower those of you listening who are getting ABA to really, you know, demand excellence and demand quality, because I think, it, you know, parents are just used to, well, this is all that's available to me, right? And I, I think that this needs to come from parents that they deserve the best care possible and that they won't settle. Like, you know, I'm going to share that story of that provider in Georgia. Um, and it's like, you know, she shouldn't have settled and she didn't settle, right? She went to multiple providers until she found someone that worked for her. Um, and so I would just encourage all families to do that. 
Yeah, and and I hear from I mean both the your voices. The passion was there. The heart is there. Now you're seeing a product that's there to be able to help families through those same concerns that you might have had. I appreciate the time that you all have spent um, with us today and and sharing some of this information and and advice and personal stories. I hope to have you back on sometime soon because I want to hear what's happening with some of these outcome measures when they actually do come out. And I want to hear the parent perspective of did did that help with the service delivery, which I, I imagine it could only uh, help to escalate this progress that we're making already in the field. So thank you all for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank <music> you.